see what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that they do not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been known, but we know that when Christ appears we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves, just as he is pure. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that we might take away our sins. In him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin, because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning, because they have been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are, and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother or s- and sister. For this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were of the of evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need and has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. There's been a number of additions to our family as a church recently. Little people have arrived, praise God for that. There's a few more brewing that we're expecting before the end of the year. And one of the things that uh, every parent kind of dreads but expects is when someone says, aha, they look like their mum, they look like their dad, there's something natural about saying they bear the family likeness. You can do that physically when they're very small. If they're a boy, they've got their mum's face. That's better than saying they've got their dad's, at least in my children's case. Uh, But as they grow, you can say not just physically, but actually they're a chip off the old block. They're as uh, funny as their mum, they're as uh, cautious as their dad. You start to see not just physical attributes on the outside, you start to be able to say that's where they got it from. Their mum's cheeky, their dad's honourable. 
I'm just changing that around for our family's sake. You start to say, look, they don't just look the same. They sound the same. They've got similar interests. They've got similar tastes. They like Bovril. They love strawberries. They like going to the same things. It's not just how they look. It's behavior and character that means they're a chip off the old block. That, that's the Greek word. Character means chip off the old block. Now, John's up to this in this passage. He's been saying, this is what you look like. Chapter 3, verse 1, that's why we read it again. God has been at work by his grace. It's all his initiative, and he's made a new family. So that we're not just called, chapter 3, verse 1, we're not just called children of God. We are children of God. Anyone who's a Christian can say, I am God's son and God's daughter, purely by his initiative, by his grace, by his activity, not by mine. All I give to God is my own sin. I'm a child of God. I might not look like him on the outside, we're all different, we're not clones, but our behavior and character on the inside is changing how we act on the outside. That's what John is saying. Look at verses 17 and 18 of chapter 3. In these sentences, there's a very interesting statement that John makes about how Christians are to behave if they are a chip off the old block. Verse 17, if anyone has material possessions, stuff, money, resources. If anyone has material possessions and see his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. Some translations say, let's not just love in word, but in deed and in truth. Being told here that if you see someone in need, if you're a Christian and you see someone in need, someone who's got less money, resources, emotionally, physically, than you have, and you do nothing about it, that is a danger sign that you're not a chip off the old block. That is a danger sign that the activity of God, verses 1 and 2 of John chapter 3, is not bearing its fruit in your life as it should be. If you've got more power, if you've got more financial resources, more emotional resources more time and energy than those who are in need, your neighbours, the marginalised, those on the fringes of society, and you do nothing to help them. That's an amber light that there is an issue in your heart. Here's John saying, one of the signs that you're a Christian, that you bear the family likeness, if you don't just speak about help, you do something about it. You're not just talking about love. Love is practical. It's uh, spelt out in hands and feet, time and energy, actions. Now, we can divide the church into two groups, globally, I'm speaking. Even in Epsom and in Yule, there will be some churches that say, the trouble with truth, truth is like a bar of soap. You can't quite get your hands on it. It keeps popping out. So we're not going to be big on truth, but we're going to be big on action. We're going to love people because that's clear and that's manageable. And all our time and energies are going to be with helping the poor, using our time and energies to help those in need. We're a church of love and of action and of deeds. But then there is another church down the road. And they say, oh, no, 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 if you do that, you sold out. We are the church of truth. We are the church who knows the gospel. They don't, we do. And very easily, not just in Epsom and Yule, but around the world, you can have churches who are big on deed and action. And then you have other churches who are big on truth. And John knows in the gospel, and the Bible knows, no such division. If you know the truth of the gospel, that's seen in action. And that's what John is saying, verses 17 and 18. No division. And at Emmanuel, we want to understand the gospel. And when we do, that's seen in action. It's seen in love. It's seen in compassion. The ultimate sign of compassion 
is telling people of their spiritual need and hunger and poverty. But they go together, word and deed. Word produces deed. So let's look at these two things. How are we going to become a church? How are we going to become Christians who don't just talk about love, but who actually do something about it? Two points. The sign and the power. The sign and the power. Here's the sign. Here's the sign. We need to remember the context here. If you're joining us, we're in the midst of a series in 1 John. And in 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, this is the context. The Christians are nervous because some of them who were amongst the church have gone out. They've left the church. 1 John 2, 19. They, some people, they went out from us, but they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued. They would have stayed. In other words, the Christians that John are writing to are wrestling with this issue. Were they Christians or not? And if they weren't Christians, how do we know that we're not Christians and that we'll give up? How do you know that you know that you're a Christian? And John has been saying through chapter 2 and into chapter 3, there are three signs, three tests. There's a, a truth test. Do you love the truth of the gospel? The authentic truth that Jesus walked the earth, that he came from heaven to earth for the sins of the world, that he died an atoning death. Do you love that truth? It's the truth test. But if you know who God is, that he's Lord of all, that he's not a king, a small king, but he's the king of the universe, whose reign is unquestionable, whose glory is unchallengeable. If you know him, do you obey him? It's the obedience test. And now in chapter 3, here's the third test. It's the love test. How do you know that you're a Christian? Truth, obedience, and the love test. Here's the love test that John is talking about, verses 18 and 19. He says, well, think of it this way. How does the world describe love? I love my car. I love my country. I put my hand on my chest when the national anthem is sung. I love my children. I love my spouse. I love chocolate. We're all going to agree on that. I love chips and fish. We can use love and it's defined as an emotion. So we fall into love and we can fall out of love. Love is transitory. It's a feeling. But here is John saying, you cannot understand the love that God is calling you to in that way. Love is defined by the actions of Jesus. Love is defined by the self-sacrificial action and interaction of Jesus with the world. In other words, God doesn't say, I love you. He defines and shows you what love is by his actions. Look at verse 11. This is how the Bible describes what love is, and it's not an emotion alone. This is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Skipping on, do not be surprised, my brothers, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love. Down to verse 16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Why does John say, why does he say, you heard this from the beginning? You heard this from the beginning. Now the reason I read from Acts 11, Luke's second DVD of the church and the gospel growing and expanding into the Greco-Roman world, it's because by the time it hit Antioch, by the time the gospel went out when it hit Antioch on the, the eastern seaboard of the Mediterranean, something happened. Something unique happened. Antioch was unique in the uh, Greco-Roman world because it was more ethnically diverse and politically diverse and socially diverse even than Rome itself. 
All of the, uh, the main towns, the main cities, more importantly, of the Greco-Roman world would have huge walls around them on the outside. Some were big enough so that you could drive a cart around, but they were huge walls, stone walls, with large wooden doors for security, clearly. But Antioch was different. Antioch had these huge walls around the outside, but they had walls around the inside too. That was what was unique about Antioch. And in Antioch, you had different quarters. So you had the Jewish quarter, you had the uh, Syrian quarter. Different ethnically demarcated zones by walls. You had uh, Greek as well. No one would cross the walls. No one would go into the other walls. It was a, a city within a city, you could say. But then the gospel starts to impact the Greco-Roman world and it goes out from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth and it reaches Antioch and something remarkable or something strange starts to happen that we read of in, in Acts 11. And it was so interesting to the church at Jerusalem, they send Barnabas to check it out and to verify it. Because what was unique as the, uh, the gospel began to, began to be understood was the walls stopped being barriers. There were Christians in Antioch who started to believe the gospel when they were Jewish and they started to speak to the Syrian Christ people who weren't yet Christians and then they believed the gospel and then they started to speak to the Greeks and they started to speak to the people on the other side of the walls and suddenly the walls were no barrier at all. The walls were being crossed by the gospel. And the walls weren't just being taken down or crossed but actually the walls were being used and shared and brought down so that they could worship together as well. It was a unique testimony to the power of the gospel. So to read again, Acts 11.20, some Christians from Cyprus and Cyrene who had come to faith in Jerusalem went to Antioch and they began to speak to the Greeks and the Jews telling them the good news. The Lord's hand was on them and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. And that's why Barnabas went to check it out. The walls were coming down in Acts chapter 11 because the gospel was going out. Now why? And how? What made them do it? It was the self-sacrificial love of the gospel. They were loving people different from them. People who had different colour skin. People who had different backgrounds. People who smelt and ate differently. People who had different colour clothes and music. People who had barriers between them, not just physically, but in all sorts of social demographic. They're not my people, but I will lay down my life for them. Why? because Jesus has laid down his life for me. It defines what love is. It's a self-sacrificial action. And then people were scratching their heads to say, who are these guys? I mean, are they Jews? They're Jews, so we just call it Jewish people. Oh no, they're not just Jews who've become Christians. They are Greeks who've become Christians and Syrians who've become Christians. What do we call them? Christians. Because Christ's love is defining and shaping what they're doing. I know, we call them Christians. And that's the first time ever in the Gospel and in the New Testament that the word Christian is used. Because it describes the fact that there are no walls in Christianity. Or there shouldn't be. The power of God's love, self-sacrificial action, laying down your life for other people who are different from you. Not just speaking about love, but doing something about it. It defines that this is not just a Jewish party. Barriers are coming down. It's not just a Syrian clique. Barriers are coming down. Walls are coming down. Not just for sharing music and food and a good time, but for worship of the same God. Let's call them Christians because they're treating each other like brothers and sisters. When all these divisions are possible, they say, no, I'm going to love you. 
I'm going to worship with you. I'm going to eat with you. I'm going to share the break, break bread with you. And by the time you get from Acts 11 to Acts 14, there's even something more remarkable. You can look at it this afternoon. They get to have a little get-together because the church is growing. They need to say, we need to appoint some pastors, some full-time people. And look at this band of brothers in Acts 13. The first team of pastors were well, Simeon from Niger, North Africa. So he would have been black. Then you've got the second man who's Lucius from Cyrene. He's Tunisian. We're in North Africa again, so he's probably brown-skinned. Then you've got Menaean. Menaean's different. He's from the family of Herod. In other words, he's royalty. He's got gold dripping from his fingers. He probably grew up with Herod and heard about Jesus. You've got Barnabas, who's a Cypriot. You've got Paul, who was a Jew. What a band of brothers. How on earth did they come together? Because of the self-sacrificial love of Jesus. Don't just talk about love, do something about it. Then the walls start coming down in Antioch and wherever the gospel goes. There's no word to describe how this band of brothers come together. What do we call them? Call them Christians. And that's why John says, back to our passage, you heard about this from the very beginning. From the very beginning. There's something going on in Antioch. What is it? They believe in someone called Jesus. Maybe, they're, maybe God's got something to do with it. We heard about them in Jerusalem, but maybe something supernatural has happened. We've never seen anything like this. What do we call them? We call them Christians. And the gospel spread like wildfire throughout the uh, ancient Near East and around the Greco-Roman basin that's around the uh, Mediterranean. It brought down barriers. And so John can say in our passage, verse 11, you heard about this from the beginning. We love one another. The church has always done it. Verse 14, we know we've passed from death to life because of this love that's unparalleled. And down to verse 16, and this is how we know what love is. How do you know? Jesus laid down his life for you. And you so too should do that for other people. Even if they don't deserve it, because neither did you. Even if they've not earned it, neither did you. Even if they look different from Jesus, so do you. Lay down your life for them. Let's bring this home. This is not a history lesson. Friends, the way that we can see that we are a growing family is not by babies being added to us. The way that we will see if we are a growing Christian family is that there will be an increased inclusivity amongst us with diversity. We do not want to be a white, middle-class church. There are plenty of those in Epsom. We want to be a multi-ethnic, multi-social, multi-generational church where there is differentness and abundance. There is nowhere else that you will see the person next to you and everyone else in the same uh, group here. You won't meet in any other place in Epsom or in you. The only thing that's brought us together is the sacrificial love of Jesus. And that's why you sit next to the person who's different from you, the younger one with the noisy children. You bear with them. The older person who you think cannot relate to you, you love them. The person from a different social background from you, with less money than you, you love them and you try and be generous to them. The person who's just become a Christian when you've been a Christian for many years, you understand them and seek to disciple them. Friends, if you think, well, that's not happening for me here, and I've been to other churches where it's not happening, it's not a criticism on the gospel, it's a criticism on the church that they are not living who they are. They're not living out verses 1 and 2. May we do that. We've been made, not just called, but made into the children of God. And one of the signs that we love one another, we know the truth, is that it's seen in our actions. Do you love the person sat next to you? I don't mean emotionally if you're married to them. It may be time to declare, I hope not. 
But do you love them in a real self-sacrificial, laying down your life sense? What about your neighbor? What about that neighbor who's cut down that tree and it's just really got up your nose? What about that neighbor who won't cut down the tree and so they're getting up your nose? Will you love them? Will you be generous to them with your time and energies and emotions? Friends, are you being who we are? Are you a chip off the old block? Or can someone see no difference from their life to yours? Lives that understand the gospel will be marked by self-sacrificial love. The walls will come down, not the trees. The walls in Antioch came down because the gospel spread. And oh, may it happen in our town as well. You set the bar pretty high. You said we need to be generous with our energies and time. I mean, where are you going to get the, uh, the power to do that? That's the second point. Where are you going to get the power to live like this? You know, where are you going to get the power, not just for One Love Manchester, as great as that was, loads of people raising money for people in need. Where are you going to get the power to love people, not just for a week or a month, but for years, 50 years, 34 years, uh, 52 years, and on into eternity or until Jesus returns? Here is the power, says John, for you to love like that. Look at verse 17 and 18 again. Don't just love in word, but in deed. It's not enough to have feelings of compassion, says John. When you see someone with less than you, it's self-sacrificial, it's costly, it's time, it's energies, it's diaries, it's inconvenience, it's new initiatives that we want to start as a church. And he has at the end of this section and at the beginning of this section as well, a motive that will work and one that will not. So look at the end of the passage. What's the motive that won't work? Verses 19 and into verse 20 tell us. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. For when our hearts condemn us, verse 20, when our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts. Now every week I go on a journey and I read some books and I listen to some people to try and understand what the Bible means, what God is saying through his word. And verses 19 and 20, most people say, we don't know what this means. So here's my best stab at it. I think this is what it means. You can be motivated by the gospel to love people. But verses 19 and 20 don't really seem to fit very well. It talks about guilt and your heart condemning you. Well, I think that's the negative motivation of love and service. What do I mean? You can say, right, I understand I've got to love people. I understand that I want to work hard for people, that I'm going to think less of myself and more of other people. That's going to be really hard, but I'm going to try and do it this week. And you last until about 12 o'clock on Monday, and then you, you've given up your lunch <laughs> to someone, and you think, that's it, I can't do any more. And then suddenly the guilt starts to burn in your heart because actually you're not able to do on Monday what you were encouraged to do on Sunday. I've got to help people. I've got to love Christians and non-Christians alike. In verse 19, the guilt monster grows and taps you on the shoulder and says, See, I told you you couldn't do it. You were told you've got to get involved in people's messy lives and it's going to be hard and costly and you last it until midday on Monday. Look at you. You're hopeless. And you get condemned and you feel small. But remember what happened in Schindler's List. Do you remember the story of Oscar Schindler? It's quite an old story. It's a great film. It's very, very moving. Oscar Schindler was a Jewish, rather a German businessman who, whose heart was condemning him at the end of World War II. 
and he wanted to do something with his wealth because he didn't agree with the, the, the Nazi regime of doing away with Jewish people. What can I do? I'm a wealthy man. And he started to give away his money in a unique way to bribe his fellow Germans to let the Jewish people go. And so he started to give off loads of his money generously and he saved the lives of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of Jewish people. But what's interesting is what happened at the end of the film. At the end of the film where he has to flee for his life, he's uh, being thanked by people whose lives he's rescued. And yet guilt is coming up from his heart. Why have I still got this watch on my wrist, says Oscar Schindler. I could have sold it and saved a life. Why am I still driving a car? I could have sold it and saved another five people's lives. Why have I got this stuff? I could have rescued even more people. And it's a great example of what will happen in your heart, and I think verse 19 and 20 is showing this, if you are motivated by guilt. If you're motivated by guilt and you think, I need to love this people, I need to love, I need to give to the food bank locally, I need to give more of my money away, more generously, I need to give more of my time and energy to people who are emotionally poor and emotionally struggling and physically poor and uh, vulnerable because of their age, whether they're old or young, I'm going to give my energies away and, and if I do that, I'm going to feel better about myself. That's the real reason you're doing it, so you feel better about yourself. If you're motivated in that way, it's guilt. You're trying to polish yourself up so you feel a better person. Just really like Oscar Schindler was, he was motivated by guilt, and that's why his heart was racked with guilt, because if I gave away the watch, if I gave and sold my car, I could save even more people. You'll never be able to do enough unless you're a thoughtless person, then you won't even struggle with this. That's the negative motivation of verses 19 and 20, when your heart comes to condemn you, because you've not done enough and you can never do enough. But here's someone who did. Look at verse 1 of chapter 3. Here's the other motivation. It's not guilt, it's love. It's not guilt. Where's the power to do this? It's not in the power of guilt, it's in the power of love. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. Remember when we looked at this a few weeks back? Uh, John is just caught up in emotion and he says, behold, he shouts out and he goes into huge font if he was writing it out on the, writing it out on the computer or typing it out and he just gets carried away with the love of God. And so he goes off on one, so to speak, respectfully and is consumed by God's love and greatness and passion and mercy. It's a burst of emotion. He's, uh, he's not knowing about God. He's knowing him, he's enjoying him right before our eyes as he writes this sentence or two. Friends, when your heart, if you're convicted about loving people more in action, not just in lip service and words, when your heart comes to condemn you, and it will, you can do more, you always can, here's a different motivation. It's not guilt, it's love. It's not guilt, it's love. And what are you to say to your heart, verses 19 to 20, when you are tempted for condemnation? Say this, O heart, You may want to condemn me, but Jesus was condemned in my place. Here's what he did. He had more money than Oscar Schindler. He was so rich beyond all splendor, and yet he became poor for my sake. Jesus was so poor he had nowhere to lay his head. He was born in a cattle stall, you remember that. He was raised in a poor family who could only uh, give enough for two little turtle doves at the temple. They were that poor. It was said of him, foxes have holes and 
birds of nest and the son of man, Jesus has nowhere to lay his head. At the end of his life, think of this, it didn't get any better for Jesus. All he had was one uh, piece of clothing and even that was uh, sold by the soldiers. He had nowhere to uh, lay his head, as it were, even in his death. So he's buried in a borrowed tomb. See, Oscar Schindler had all this money and he knew that he could have done more to save people. But there's no more that Jesus Christ could have given or did or done. He did it all. And because Jesus Christ did it all, when your heart comes to condemn you, and you can always do more, and so can I, remember that Jesus Christ did it all, and he did it all for the glory of his Father and for our ultimate good. When your heart's tempted to trying to condemn you, remember him. Be motivated not by guilt, but by love, the love of God that he's shown upon you. And every so often you need to take yourself in hand and say, behold, look away from yourself and look at Jesus Christ on the cross. That's what we're going to remember now. You have to see what Jesus Christ has done for you. You have to sing about it. You have to know it, not just in your head, but you have to enjoy it and feel it emotionally. When you see it, you'll never be able to look at poor people in the same way. You'll never be able to listen to someone who says, I'm struggling with debt in the same way without giving them a love gift anonymously. You'll never be able to listen to people who are struggling emotionally and say, do you want me to watch your family for you? Do you want to get together and cry about it and talk about it? You'll never be able to ignore people. You'll, there'll be a generosity of spirit because you'll realize as you listen to people in pain, people who are crying, people who are upset, people who don't know where to turn to or go, you realize this. The love of Christ will push you out towards people like that, not away from them. Because you want to treat other people, people who are hurting the way Christ treated you and me. That's what you want to do. And when that happens, the world will say, what do we call these people? They'll say, wow, what do we call these people? Like they did in Antioch. And I hope that they'll say, they're Christians. Let's pray. Father, even in saying these words, you've convicted me about a lack of generosity of time and resources. Help me to be more concerned about eternal weighty things than about the things that will pass away in this world. Help us please, each one of us, to take a hard look at how we use our time, our resources. This is not just talking about money. It's so much broader than that. But I pray that you would stir us up and then send us out, not because of guilt, not because we want to make ourselves feel better, but because you have lavished your love upon us in Jesus. And we desperately want to tell others of the good news. So please help us to take a hard look at ourselves, but only after we've looked lovingly again at you. Amen.